Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott, and I'm now called the pastor of spiritual formation around here. <laughs> That's my wife, Hillary. <laughs> we have four grown children, and we have four grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, that's my mother with the pink sweater. Yeah, very generational thing around here. Okay, so, yes, as Pastor Britta said, we are still in our Listen sermon series, but we're moving into the second segment, which is the calling of the prophets. The subtitle of that today is what happens when we listen or by extension what happens when we listen to God anybody have an idea what happens he speaks that's a good answer what's that find peace so one answer might be what happens when we listen to God Positive things. Is the answer ever negative things? At least from our perspective. So when we listen to God, sometimes positive things happen. Sometimes negative things happen. It's a third possibility that I've been mulling over the last few days. What happens when we listen to God? Nothing. It sounds funny because we're not supposed to say that in church, right? I promise you it's not funny when it's your experience, right? And it sometimes is our experience. In fact, for the prophets in the Bible... You can observe all three of those things. Positive things, negative things, nothing. So what happens when we listen to God? Really, I think the answer is on a, a different grid. Um... In fact, I was thinking about, Pastor Paul, was it last week you were talking about the transactional? Yes. Um, we, we can tend to look at questions like this, issues like this, in a transactional way. If I do this, I get that. But it seems like what God is about in this communicational exchange of calling and listening is relationship. What happens when we listen to God? Relationship. Relationship is the intersection of calling and listening, right? And it's relationship between the caller and the listener. It's also 
between the listeners. You follow what I'm saying? As we listen to God's call, we tend to find ourselves in relationship with other people that are listening to God's call. All right. Well, let me just let me just state what might might seem obvious. This is a Christian church. What that means, one of the central things that means to us is this relationship that we're talking about. It's not an abstract, it's a real thing, and it's at the heart of everything that we do. Our relationship with God. How does that happen? Did you notice in the passage from the Gospel of John that uh, Marsha and Becky read this morning? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. I don't speak Spanish, but as Becky was reading, I was noticing the repeating of the phrase El Camino. And uh, it stood out to me because El Caminos are really cool trucks. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, that must mean the way. That must mean way because if it, a truck was named El Camino, that's probably the way. And so I could kind of get my bearings in the Spanish scripture on that. Jesus is the way. Jesus Christ is our reconciliation with God. That's what we're talking about. The life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is our way of relationship with God. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to be in that conversation with you. Well, now let's... Let's look at our passage for today. Now, I should say this is from the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Hebrew Bible. This was, this was part of Jesus' Bible, right? But it's, it happened before Jesus. So this, the unfolding of this story is before the life of Christ. It's the same God. It's the same relationship. So this is 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to read through the whole chapter, and I'm going to stop along the way to uh, make some comments and observations. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Stop. <laughs> that kind of fell out of nowhere, right? Like, here, here's Elijah, and he's telling somebody that's not going to rain anymore. So we need to go back a little bit and get some context here. Ahab was uh, the son of Omri. Omri was a king that started a new dynasty in Israel and um, established the city of Samaria. 
In fact, that's probably where Elijah is making this declaration. Um, this is a confrontational statement that Elijah is making because this Omrite dynasty, so Ahab, as uh, they have imported some religious practices from neighboring cultures. And they have mixed them with the Hebrew religion. And one of those things is uh, a, go a god that's called Baal, uh, actually was known as the Stormbringer. So this god was uh, supposedly responsible for the cycle of the seasons and would bring the storms and bring the rain every year so that the crops would grow and people could eat. And so this was being built into and mixed with um, the Hebrew religion. and. It, it had a lot to do with political um, alliances and um, the building of this kingdom, this little empire, and of keeping things working. Uh, so Elijah comes with this confrontation of that. He is standing in an alternative paradigm, an alternative view. He's standing up and he's saying, that Stormbringer is not responsible for the weather. God is in charge of the weather. And just so we're clear about that, it's not going to rain again until God says so. All right. I think it's important. Um, sometimes when we read these passages like this, it can almost feel like a football game or something. You know, it's like this competition, you know, my team's going to win. <clears throat> I, I'm not really sure that's what's going on. I think that Elijah is just standing up and testifying to the truth of God. And he is not just contradicting a different religion. He is speaking truth to power. He's confronting an imperial regime that um, wants to keep things on its own rails. Um, we should also observe that probably Elijah didn't just hatch this plan on his own. <clears throat> I, it doesn't say here God called Elijah and told him, to say this stuff. But I think we can pretty much, you know, ascertain that's the case, that um, <clears throat> Elijah was, fought, was, was listening to the call of God to stand in this place of confrontation. All right, so then we go on to verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. <clears throat> So you pick up what's going on here. Uh, presumably, God sends him to speak truth to power, 
to um, confront the regime with this alternative way of seeing things. Uh, and then he says, run away. <laughs> so he sends Elijah to hide. And it's, I think it's like 30 miles, 40 miles, but it's on the other side of the Jordan River. And this Kerith Ravine is really close to Tishbe, where Elijah is from. So he probably had a mental image, you know, when he heard this from God, however it was that he heard it, um, he had a picture of where he was going. So he goes to this ravine, there's still water there, and somehow these ravens are, uh, are bringing him some food. Um, I have seen the gifts that the crows bring around here, and <laughs> it... It's not always appetizing, but hey, you know, <clears throat> whatever works. Um, so he's there for a while. He's hiding. He's presumably by himself, more or less at least, right? He's still listening to God. Um, God talks in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that God begins to talk with him here in this, in the Kareth Ravine is the water dries up. So he knows he can't stay there, right? <laughs> he knows there must be another calling coming um, <clears throat> because this, he's not, he, can't stay, he can't survive here anymore. A couple of things that I want us to reflect on about uh, this. Does that mean that he didn't hear God correctly? Does it mean that God was playing tricks on him or that it wasn't really God's calling after all when, since the water dried up? I, I don't want to make that conclusion. I want to see that God called him. He listened. He went. It was what he was hoping it would be for a while. Um... And then the resources dried up. I don't know about you, but in my experience, sometimes that's how God talks. Whatever this place, whatever place you're in, whatever this particular aspect of your calling, you know, if it's not working, it's at least time to ask the question. Should I move on? Another important piece of this part of the story is we are not exempt from the consequences of the truth we tell. If I speak the truth, that truth applies to me too. Okay? So he said to Ahab, it's not going to rain anymore until God says so. He didn't get his own special little cloud to keep it raining where he was. He lived under that same thing. All right, so then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And 
bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. All right, so he has traveled from Samaria east across the Jordan to the um, Kerith Ravine near Tishbe, where he's from. Now that the, um, the little brook is dried up, he's being sent to Zarephath. Okay, by my reckoning, that's like about 100 miles, maybe, maybe a little less than 100 miles. It's north. It's outside of Israel. It's between Tyre and Sidon in what is now Lebanon. It's where Jezebel is from. Jezebel is the wife of Ahab. She's the daughter of the king of Sidon. All right? So Ahab has married Jezebel. That's part of why this mixing of religion is a political thing. It's an alliance. Okay, so, so God is telling Elijah, go there. I've directed a widow there to take care of you. Apparently, the widow did not get the memo. So, it's true that God directed her to help Elijah. We believe that's true. We don't know what that direction looked like. But apparently, it didn't look like God audibly saying to her that morning, Widow of Zarephath, you shall make a sandwich for a random Jewish guy. It's important to remember, even in these stories in the Bible that we can like read through quickly and we just assume that God's talking all the time in ways that are really easy to understand. Not so much, right? Not so different from how we have to discern how the process for what, what it means for us to listen to God. Here's another thing about Zarephath. Um, it's the name that was uh, that was used at the time was uh, Sarepta, and it is close to the Hebrew word for smelter. It was a place where idols were made. It was 
That was its identity. They made, you know, whatever idol you might want. And that was the place to get it. It's interesting. Even Jesus uh, made, made a point about this particular story and how uh, Elijah was sent out of Israel. You know, he talks about, Jesus says at one point in Luke, in Luke Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, um, he says to the Pharisees, um, There were many widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a widow in Zarephath. Pretty interesting to me that um, it's almost like a missionary journey for Elijah. Um, And in fact, this this house, uh, this this household that he ends up being part of, kind of reminds me of a house church in the Book of Acts. Because this, um, even though this widow is very poor, and apparently you know she's convinced that she's about to die, uh, she runs a household. You know, and and uh, there's room there for Elijah to stay there. We're going to find that in the next section. So, if we review here, we've got in that. Verse 1, we've got confrontation. In the second section where Elijah's hiding, we have separation. And in this, in this third segment, I, I think we have congregation. We have a gathering. And the work of God is dependent upon this uh, cooperating of the widow's generosity with Elijah's blessing. So I think there is a picture in there of how we do life together, how we do congregational life together. It's a combining of our resources and our gifts. There's another thing to notice here. You know, I mentioned earlier the the idea of um, calling and listening, the, the relationship of the caller and the listener and then ultimately relationship of the listeners. You see that here. Because this widow, who, remember, she's not in Israel. And she even says, um, you know, as surely as the Lord your God lives, not my God. (laughs) And when Elijah responds, he says, um, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. He's clarifying this is the God of Israel, not not the gods that you're familiar with here. Even so, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. She listened. Now, I don't know what her attitude was. We get some indication of that in the next segment, that it might not have been completely positive and crystal clear in the beginning. But she listened, and she, she obeyed, and she was generous. All right, so here's the last segment. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? 
Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So it's important to remember, again, this uh, the situation outside of Israel, this man of God. I wonder if there's some sarcasm in her voice the first time she uses that phrase. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Harsh. Real. What we see in this final section is lamentation. So we've had confrontation, separation, congregation, and lamentation. And lamentation, remember, is not just being sad. It is the heart cry. It is crying out your honest soul to God, your complaint, if you will. She's expressing that. Elijah expresses it as well to God. Have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? So in the previous segment, you know, we see this, this widow with very limited resources. So Elijah has been called to a ministry that cannot support itself, let alone him. And yet the blessing of God comes, and the, house, the household thrives. Death doesn't happen. The woman, the widow and her son do not die of, of starvation. Now, having avoided that catastrophe, the son dies of an illness. So if you can see, there's this, all through these stories, this whole chapter, there's this ebb and flow of provision. God provides, then that provision changes, and Elijah has to be led to something else. And this just it keeps ebbing and flowing, and he keeps following. And so the calling and the listening is an unfolding thing. It's an unfolding thing. It's not once for all. And now in this lamentation segment, we have a happy ending. Thank God. We experience that sometimes. Sometimes we don't. We have to be honest about this. 
There are times when this story would have to be rewritten. And after all of Elijah's pleading and praying, it wouldn't be God's sovereign will for that son to be restored to life. The son would die. It happens, my friends. It happens. It has happened this week. The lamentation doesn't change. The crying out of our honest, soulful reality to God doesn't change. And that's where the relationship abides. When we talk about having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're not talking about always positive things, according to us. It's positive things, it's negative things. Sometimes it really feels like nothing. But the point is the relationship. The point is the relationship with God, with our creator, created and creator, connected in relationship. This is the invitation. This is the gospel. This is the truth. I know that some of you are holding the version of the story that doesn't end the way. Peace to you. May God give you courage. May God give you wholeness. May God give you breath, one breath after the other. Sometimes that's what prayers are in those moments. As Pastor Paul did with the kids, we just breathe in the presence of God and the Spirit translates. So the practice, the spiritual practice that we are um, exploring, experimenting with in this, in this segment of um, our sermon series is centering prayer. Uh, you may have gotten a card. If you haven't, you can find one that looks like this and it has um, these instructions on the back. Centering prayer is a method of contemplative prayer in which we rest silently in the presence of God. There is no goal but to be with God. There is no goal but to be with God. One, choose a simple centering word, such as a name or attribute of God, to focus your thoughts. Two, choose a designated amount of time to remain in silence or quiet reflection, five to 20 minutes. It's helpful to set a timer with a gentle alert. 
Three, sitting comfortably and with eyes closed, settle yourself and slow your breathing. Focus on your centering word as the symbol of your desire to be present to God. Four, when other thoughts come to mind, return ever so gently to your centering word. So, helpful instructions, um, especially when you're um, on your own trying to do this and trying to remember what it even means. Um, Right now, we're going to spend a couple of minutes uh, in centering prayer. And you don't need to worry about those instructions. Also, you might have one of these cool little field books. Uh, You don't need to worry about that right now either. You might want to return to it afterward and jot down some thoughts. But right now, this is just going to be a moment to be present to God. So you don't need to confess your sins right now. You don't need to intercede for anybody. You don't need to petition God for anything. Um, This is really just simply presence to God. And if if you realize that you've become distracted, just quiet yourself again. Don't waste any time on feeling bad about being distracted. This is just the, the creator and the created together. So, let's be still and breathe in the presence of God. <clears throat> 